You're listening to Between Headlines. I'm Allison Hall. Between Headlines is a podcast about the people behind the headlines. This is something I've been working on, okay, thinking about for years. I'm a journalist and I meet incredible people every day, but our news cycle is fast and our attention spans are really short. I started to realize that with each person I meet who has an impact on me, I barely have time to stop and listen and learn from them before moving on to my next story. My favorite part of my job is getting to meet regular people who turn out to be far from it. People who have overcome something, people whose lives have been changed, who may have found themselves connected to a headline. This is a place for their full stories, unfiltered. We have a lot to learn from one another, and of course, we are all going through a lot. But life and these strange times in particular are very different for everyone. I hope in listening what you think you know is challenged. I hope each episode provokes a sense of empathy and understanding. Every two weeks, I'll be releasing an episode centered on a headline-based story, but with a real person who that story affects. This won't be about the daily news or the latest stats. This is the raw emotion and lessons from real life. And this is my effort to slow down and listen. And I hope you do too. For today's episode, I speak with Diana Barrent. Diana was one of the very first few people to be diagnosed with coronavirus in New York City in early March, when most of us were only just beginning to understand the severity of something called coronavirus or COVID-19. Diana was already sick with the headline-making disease, and she was completely isolated. Diana is a wife and a mother of two, and she holed up in her bedroom to recover for 18 days to protect her family. During her extreme isolation, Diana started a Facebook group, Survivor Corps, to connect with and band together with other people recovering from COVID. There are now more than 105,000 COVID survivors in that Facebook group. We have heard so much about the high mortality rate of COVID-19, and sadly, over 200,000 people have died in the United States alone. But what about all of the people who have a less severe but still very serious brush with the disease and are told to recover, at home, all alone? After all, there are millions of them around the world. With Survivor Corps, Diana's mission is tenfold to share resources for plasma donation sites, medical research, and to connect with the largest community of human beings who have actually had the disease that has ripped through 2020 and all of our lives. Through Diana's efforts to encourage COVID survivors to donate their plasma, she has subsequently created a cohort of people who use the space to connect, to share, and to feel less alone in their battle and their recovery. Diana talks about the very real long-term side effects of COVID and how so much is still unknown. She talks about the stigma that comes along with having the virus and the reaction she gets to being a whistleblower of sorts in her community. Diana's story is a reminder that we all need to continue to take COVID-19 seriously. And at the same time, I am filled with a sense of hope knowing that someone like Diana is leading the charge for life-saving treatments, medical research, and simply human connection. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Diana. Diana, I have read so much about you now in this COVID space. Who were you before COVID came into your life so drastically? 
I have to say that I've had more lives than uh, most cats, probably. Um, I read Michelle Obama's book last year or whenever it came out, and I loved the way she spoke about, you know, the worst thing to ask a little girl is what they want to be when they grow up because we're all constantly becoming um, and we're all in the process of, you know, constant change. So um, I started off working in politics and government. I worked at at the State Department for a couple of years. My first job out of college um, is an aide to the Secretary of State, and I traveled with her. And then I spent a year at the White House. And then I went to law school, and I worked at a big Wall Street law firm. And then I traveled with President Clinton in his post-presidency for about 10 years. And I then became a photographer And I had a photography business for 12 years and ended up signed with um, a big New York agency. And um, now I apparently am in the public health sphere. (laughs) So yeah, things have uh, found (laughs) different versions (laughs) and and that's probably skipping some. (laughs) Wow. No kidding. That's incredible. So just tell me with COVID, I mean, how did it enter your life? I mean, we all can remember back to early March or even before that when we started to hear about it. But for you, it was a little different. What happened? Yeah. So actually, I had been in- incredibly nervous about it. Um, not not for myself, uh, but, you know, my, my husband has MS. My, my mom is elderly and, you know, has health issues. And, you know, all I kept on hearing was that it affects the elderly and the immunocompromised. And I am not a germaphobe by any stretch of the imagination. A year and a half ago, I was chest high in the Ganges River photographing the world's largest congregation of humanity in the in history at the Kumela. Um, I didn't even need a Pepto-Bismol. Um, you know, like I, I spend my summers when my kids are away at camp, camping, you know, trekking through Mongolia and Africa, like in a pup tent, not glamping or anything I mean, with my camera. And, you know, I always prided myself on having, you know, immunity of steel, but I am a complete news junkie. Um, so I had been watching everything come out of China and then through Italy and I live outside of New York City. And it, you know, you, I, I don't think you need to think that broadly to realize that, you know, New York City is the gateway to the world. It wasn't going to be long before it hit our shores. And so I was quite nervous, actually, in the weeks leading up um, in February, even. I was having my kids, when they came home from school, wash all their clothes, hot water, you know, shower immediately. I was canceling routine doctor's appointments. Um, Everyone thought that I was being a little crazy. But then I went to a meeting on the evening of March 9th, and there were eight people sitting in around a living room. It was a business-type kind of feeling of a meeting, Um, not social. And at that point, it was just, you know, don't touch your face and wash your hands often. Um, We did not know that it was an airborne virus. And so uh, there were eight people at the meeting. Two of them, at least two, had been at a conference that ended up was a super spreader conference in the days previous to that meeting. Everyone got COVID who was at that meeting and one person died two weeks later. So I was among the first people, you know, the first person to be diagnosed with COVID in New York City was on March 1st. I contracted it on March 9th and I came down with symptoms on Friday the 13th. Um, I know, of course, 
of course, Friday the 13th, 2020, what else could happen but waking up with COVID? Um, There was nothing subtle about it. I had 103 fever. I felt like I had an elephant sitting on my chest. I had a respiratory infection. Um, And I had been following it closely enough that even though I could not possibly imagine how I could have been um, exposed to it or how I, of all people, could have been you know, subject to it or, you know, um, or victim to it, I should say. Um, I I knew the telltale signs. And so I immediately, I grabbed my laptop and I went into my bedroom and I stayed in isolation for 18 days. Wow. And how did you get a test? I had to fight for a test. Um, so I was a photographer up until March 12th and I had just photographed an event at one of our local elementary schools in a packed gymnasium packed with children, parents and teachers for a, a dance performance. I was doing a you know volunteer project for the school. And I was I didn't know at that point where I had been exposed and we didn't know what the incubation period was and so I was convinced that I was patient zero for my entire town that I had infected everybody so I really fought to get tested um not because it would have changed my outcome you know either way at that point whether or not I was positive but because it, I got sick prior to things shutting down um I was terrified that I had exposed others And um, I went to get tested and I was told that the only way to get tested was if you had been in China, Iran, or Italy in the previous, you know, three months, or you could prove that you had had 10 minutes of sustained exposure to somebody who had tested positive. At that point, there were only a handful of people in the entire New York region who had tested positive and nobody had come forward with their identity. So it was this completely Kafka-esque situation because it was impossible to prove. Um, I was so livid that I went home, I posted my own timeline. I did my own contact tracing um, on Facebook and our town parent page. And I wrote out a full calendar of everywhere I'd been in the previous 10 days, which made me about the least popular person in my town ever. Um, but I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I fired off an email to you know some really local representatives. And at the last minute, I posted on Facebook. And by the next morning, it got shared thousands of times, which was kind of crazy for me. You know, I had just recently had a photograph in National Geographic, and I think it was shared four times. Um, you know, I, I don't live the kind of life where things are shared thousands of times. <laughs> it was the first time that ever happened to me. Um, but it, you know, through a friends of friends of friends or acquaintances of acquaintances, it ended up um, at my con- on my congressman's lap the next morning who it got his attention and he called in a test for me, which was, you know, great for me, not exactly a scalable solution for the rest of the community. Um, I ended up getting a positive result three days later. Um, I then went and I told my school district wouldn't, and they chose to not actually notify anybody, which was shocking, but yeah. And so you said that you were the least popular member of your community when you posted that timeline saying all of the places that you had been unknowingly at the time, uh, possibly having coronavirus. I mean, what was that like? Did you get negative feedback from people? Did you have people reaching out to you angry that you might have been in contact with them? I I did get some pushback. Yeah, I did. I got uh, notes from people saying, you know, just so you know, you went to that hair salon and now nobody is making appointments there. 
you know, meanwhile, everything was shut down by the government the next day. So it was sort of ridiculous. But in more recently, I, I you know, in, in the beginning of August, I actually raised up on that same, you know, town Facebook page, you know, like, hey, guys, now that, you know, I hadn't really talked about it since then because it was spilled milk. There was nothing, you know, nothing to be done. But I raised the issue of like, you know, hey, you know, now that we're talking about school reopening, how are we going to deal with notifications? Because mine wasn't. Um, it wasn't dealt with in the spring. This is what happened. So we need to be prepared in the fall. Um, and a member of the Board of Ed called me and threatened me with silence. I got blocked from the um, town parent page, as did my husband, who doesn't even use Facebook, which was hilarious. Um, the superintendent called me a liar. I, I've basically been canceled by my town, which is um, sort of ironic, given that the trajectory of my life over the last six months went from being like, you know, somebody with no public profile to someone with a national profile with... Uh, 103,000 people, you know, following me in this group, but my own town, it's a very different story. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, people talk about the stigma of having COVID and in Survivor Corps, I know you posed a question once, I mean, what is the stigma that people have faced? And so many people wrote various versions of that same story. I mean, what about friends even family members, like, is there anyone in your life or people that you might have considered acquaintances who you noticed were maybe acting differently both after your diagnosis and since then? Once you've been touched by COVID, I mean, I think it does leave you with a bit of PTSD. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy. And when I see people being careless, when I see people making uh, decisions that are not based in science, and I speak out, uh, people see that as fear mongering. You know, just let 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 the you know let the people in charge make their decisions and don't question things. Um, so that's more the feedback that I get. That I think people find me, you know, think that I'm being hysterical about the situation, except for you know. It, it's maddening to have a school opening based on te temperature checks. We just did a survey of four, over 4,000 people, which is, will be the, is the largest study of um, non-hospitalized COVID patients that will have been done to date. And I'll give you a little preview of one of the findings, um, which we haven't released yet. And one of them is that one third, only one-third of people present with a fever. And those are adults. Children generally present with gastro issues, not with fever at all. So by basing school openings on temperature checks, you know, that's solving yesterday. It's solving today's problem with yesterday's solution. Yeah, it's a terrific way to screen for the flu, but it's not going to help keep COVID out of schools. And so if I raise a if I raise something like that, I, I definitely feel like I'm being attacked um, because, you know, just let just let things go. Things need to reopen. Like, why are you always, you know, focusing on the, you know, the doom and gloom side of it? But the truth of it is that the doom and gloom side of it is very real. And, you know, I, I just I it angers me when people don't take it seriously enough. Yeah, I bet, because you know what it's like. And as you said, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy, let alone 
you know, people at school or teachers or, or anyone. Anybody, anyone, anyone. And the, and the thing is, is that the more we know, the more insidious it is. So when I had it, it was, you know, I went through it thinking, okay, either I, I, there's a seven to day, 10 day period where it, there were, there can be a crash. Um, and so once I was on the other side of that, I was like, okay, I'm going to recover. Like, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be one of the first survivors. This is kind of amazing. And that's what spurred on the idea for Survivor Corps. And we can talk about that. But, you know, at the same time, I didn't realize that surviving COVID does not always mean recovery. Um, for one third of people, they are not recovering. And one out of five young, healthy people who have no pre-existing conditions. And when I say young, that tops off at 34. I'm not counted in that category. I'm 46. Um, so, you know, from a Maya high perspective, if, if you look at it, we are, as a country, we're tracking infections, we are tracking mortality, we're tracking, you know, I'm sorry, we're tracking infections, hospitalization, and mortality. But there's this huge bucket of people in the middle, like the vast, vast majority. I mean, only a small percentage of people are actually hospitalized for COVID. Most people like me recover at home with Tylenol and Gatorade, and they are not getting better. Not only are they not getting better, you know, a 28-year-old woman in my group who's a fitness instructor, she just posted a photo a couple of hours ago back in the hospital with like heart attack-like symptoms. Um, You know, she had COVID five months ago. And and so I think that people think of it as, okay, either I'm going to get the flu or I'll end up, if I'm really unlucky or if I'm in really bad health, I'll end up on a vent. You know, may, those people are worried. But the truth is, is that anybody can, th- this can ruin anybody's life. life. I mean, we are finding it affects every single organ system. Um, and the, the ravages that we're seeing on people's bodies is just... Uh, it is so frightening. I mean, we're seeing post-COVID onset diabetes, uh, post-COVID onset lupus, tachycardia, and severe neurological issues. Um, it, it seems to age people decades in the time of months. It's terrifying. You Can you walk me through when you were talking about your diagnosis and then your isolation for 18 days? I mean, what was that like, especially being one of the first people as somebody who hasn't thankfully had COVID yet, you know, that time in all of our lives was really scary. People were scared of each other. They were scared of the world. They were scared of contracting it. Every single headline was about COVID and how to avoid it. And here you are one of the first people in New York to have it and reading all of these headlines and you're holed up in your bedroom with the door shut. You must've been so scared that your husband as you said, who has MS, your children, like what was that fear like? Um, There were were points that were absolutely terrifying. Um, There were points that I I really, God, I mean, there was one night that one of the the great symptoms of COVID is insomnia. Um, And so added to that, I'd be up in the middle of the night and there was no survivor core or anything like that. Um, I immediately made friends with one ER doctor in the city who was also in isolation and we would spend time on the phone together because we were the only people who could relate to one another. 
But um, there was one night in particular that I remember reading about um, David Latt, who's very prominent in the New York legal circles and um, is now a member of Survivor Corps. And he was on a bench at the time. And I had been a lawyer in New York and I knew who he was and I knew that we were about the same age. And when I read his story, and at that point, it did not seem like he was going to make it. He, By the way, he is doing extremely well and just ran a his first mile, um, which is more than I can say that I've done in, since I've had COVID. Um, but I read that and I, I just sort of crumpled on the floor of my closet. I, I was, you know, to be the guinea pig of any sort of novel disease is frightening to say the least. Um, you know, on the other hand, I mean, and it was also strange just being, I missed the whole, you know, going shopping for toilet paper phase. Um, like I missed the whole mask situation and the introduction of social distancing. Um, when I came out, I, I you know, I, I sort of felt like, you know, that, you know, when Jared Leto like walked out of the, um, the desert, he had been out camping and like walked back into LA and found out, you know, they were in the middle of lockdown pandemic. Um, I sort of felt as removed as that. Um, but at the same time, it was a gift in many ways. Um, it was, I, I would, if, had I been, you know, out with my family, I would have been supervising my kids, you know, transition to online schooling. I would have been stocking up on toilet paper like everybody else and, you know, dealing with meals and so on and so forth. And it allowed me time to think in a way that, um, you know, and think creatively in a way that I don't think I'd been allowed in many, many years uh, where I'd been really consumed by motherhood and, you know, all of that of, you know, managing a household and everything that comes along with it, my business. Um, and it was during that time that I started Survivor Corps. I started it while I was in isolation. Um, and so, and I attribute it to the isolation. So, it, it was scary being among the first, but I don't want to make isolation into a negative, frightening thing because it is the responsible right thing to do if you even suspect that you have COVID. Um, do not share a bathroom with anybody in your family if you can help it. If you don't have that choice, scrub it down with disinfectant after every single use. You know, I I ended up with an eight-day column in the New York Post while I was in isolation, which gave me, it was sort of a good project every day. I wrote an article and recorded a video blog, and it sort of became the face of the average COVID patient because nobody had seen that yet. Um, and it was sort of surreal that I was being sort of billed as like the good news story in a way, <laughs> um, because the city around me was burning, you know, you know, there were, it was just heartbreaking as I would watch pictures of the tents, hospitals going up in Central Park and the morgues building in Queens. Um, it was, it was surreal, but um, it was, it was a gift in many ways. Why did you start Survivor Corps? So the reason I started it was I got several emails um, all in one day from – they all forwarded to me from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai Hospital had the first COVID uh, – post-COVID convalescent plasma program in the country. And they were recruiting people with the idea, you know, convalescent plasma is an idea that goes back well over a century. It's, it goes back to 
the mid 1890s um, when it was used against diphtheria, the antibodies in one person's blood or in the plasma, the sort of amber watery substance in your blood, that's where the antibodies live. If you can transfer it from one person to another, no matter how crudely, um, it can pass on that sort of, you know, what I call your inner hazmat suit that you have built by having COVID. You get to share it with somebody else by donating your plasma. And so, you know, it has a very long history. The Nobel Prize was won for it in 1901. It was used against the measles. Um, it was used against, you know, more recently Ebola, H1N1. You know, it it has a long and fairly safe history. And so it was being explored for use against COVID. And they were looking for people who, were, um, who could test negative for the virus um, and people who were 14 days symptomatic. There were very, very few people. Um, in fact, they couldn't get anybody. And I had gone public with my story. And so for most people, I was the only person who anybody knew who had COVID. Um, you know, and so everybody was for, forwarding me the same email. And I quickly realized that I, you know, I just I remembered just enough back to 10th grade biology to realize that if I was going to come out of this on the other side, and by that point it looked good, you know, like the respiratory infection was clearing rather than getting worse. I was getting other symptoms, which were totally unexplained, like GI issues, which we had, I had no idea. I thought I had a stomach virus because we didn't even know that, you know, GI issues could even be related to COVID, um, let alone make up for 40% of the cases. Um, but I saw that email come through from Mount Sinai or the, that, you know, those emails, multiple, and realized that Mount Sinai was not going to be the only game in town for very long. And there was going to be a free market established for convalescent plasma and survivors were going to be a commodity. And so where I might be one of the first survivors, there were going to be thousands for sure to follow. And unfortunately, there have been, you know, hundreds of thousands to follow, millions to follow. Um, and so... I realized that a free market for convalescent plasma, it just makes no sense. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. If you are, when you are in the midst of a collective crisis, you need efficiency and you need collaboration. You do not need competition. And so rather, you know, and, and I was right, you know, they weren't the only game in town for very long. And within weeks, um, Columbia had started a program and Montefiore and the Rockefeller Center and then Stony Brook. And, and this is just in the New York area. Um, I, I ended up actually being the first volunteer at Columbia University's convalescent plasma program. But what, what it did, so I realized that if I was going to be one of the first survivors, if I could gather or put together a coalition, if we could gather all as a movement that we could offer a tremendous amount to science, um, that we could offer a tremendous amount to the world. Um, I actually, uh, so Dr. Fauci was doing a Facebook Live with Mark Zuckerberg that week, and I managed to get a question in on immunity. And he, it was the last question that he took, and he answered, and he said that there was reason to believe that immunity would follow if it were like any other coronavirus or any other virus of its type. We didn't know how long it would last or so on and so forth. And so at that point, I had higher hopes for an assurance of immunity. 
And so I envisioned it in part as a service organization. And so I named it after the Peace Corps. Because I saw it, I, I imagined people with antibodies helping out on the front lines and not being a drain on PPE and holding the hands of the dying and cheering on women in childbirth or just going grocery shopping for their neighbors. Um, and the other part of that, so that didn't actually quite happen <laughs> because the science isn't there on immunity yet. I still love the idea, but you know, we, we, we need science first. Um but the 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 second part of it did come to fruition and remains our mission to this day, and that is to mobilize an army of survivors to donate plasma and support science by participating in every academic, uh, scientific, and medical study and trial for which they qualify. So not only does Survivor Corps exist now as a an open Facebook group, which is the group that I started on March 24th, we're now over 103,000 members, I believe. Um, but we also have a website, SurvivorCorps.com, which is a one-stop shop on how to give back, how where to donate plasma, just put in your zip code. We list all of the studies that you can be a part of. So not only have I donated my plasma eight times the first time, to scientific research through Columbia, the subsequent seven through the New York Blood Center for direct patient transfusion, because I happen to be in a universal donor. Um, I'm AB positive. Blood donors and plasma donors are not the same matches before you get a whole lot of phone calls correcting me on that. <laughs> um, and so, but I've also donated blood for vaccine research. I have donated blood for T-cell research because it really looks like our antibody response will really lie in our T-cells, not in the presence of antibodies. Um, and, you know, I have participated in, you know, just about every study you can possibly imagine down to one that tracks my Fitbit and my heart rate. <laughs> um, that happens to be one of my favorites, but, um, and now we're at a point where we are doing our own research. So we have launched a program with Columbia University called Recovery Corps, which is um, a really cool program. It is a longitudinal study of COVID patients. Um, it will track them over years and it will track them both serologically, so tracking their antibodies and tracking them symptomatically. And it's being led by Wendy Chung, who is a, you know, rock star geneticist, you know, even I as a non-scientist, I was like, you couldn't believe um, that it was Wendy who's running it. And, you know, that should be, you know, that's, that's an amazing project. And we do, um, and we are doing our own research with Indiana University Medical School, because what's happening now is that the world is realizing that people are not necessarily recovering from COVID, but yet we have no data on anybody who is not hospitalized. Nobody goes to their doctor with COVID, right? I mean, you're told only go to seek medical help if you think you're dying. Literally, if you can't breathe, go to the ER, but anything short of that, best of luck, stay home. You know, nobody is going to their GP or urgent care, you know, for treatment for COVID. And so as a result, we have no data we have no metrics. We have nothing on the huge group of people who were not hospitalized. And we need to fill in that gap. And so we started working with a doctor, Natalie Lambert, at 
IU med school. She also serves on the state of Indiana's pandemic task force and is just like unbelievable. And it happens that her background is in how to call medical data from social media, which was, you know, just like a match made in heaven. And so we, you know, when the CDC put out a report in July saying that they were increasing their symptom list from four to 12, we put out a list with 98 symptoms. Um, And we just closed a study with over 4,000 participants. By contrast, a paper was just just published based on 60 tweets. Uh, The CDC's report was based on 263 people um, about uh, long-term COVID. JAMA's report was based on 183. Um, We had over 5,000 participants. We had over 4,000 completed studies. We actually had to postpone the due date for it because it was taking people days to complete because it's so comprehensive. And so we're really hoping to fill in a lot of those gaps. And beyond the scientific angle, which is so important and what an incredible thing you've created, people are also on there just pouring their hearts out. They're updating in real time. They're posting pictures of themselves if in their hospital beds or uh, sharing that they've unfortunately lost a family member. I mean, what do you think it is that's making people share all of that in this group of strangers? It's funny that you've touched on probably my favorite. I mean, there's not a lot to love about COVID, Um, but there is something beautiful that came out of that is a part of this community. I mean, if you think about it, it is a community that grew out of extreme isolation. It is a group of 103,000 strangers in America who are having the most civil, most supportive, most caring, uplift not uplifting, but uplifting each other conversation in America. We are living in the most fractured political time of our lives. I think that's safe to say. Everyone will agree no matter what side of it they're on. But in Survivor Corps, nobody's arguing about masks. There's nobody who's calling it a hoax. There is nothing but support for others. It is, I I call Survivor Corps the epicenter of hope because to me, that is something extraordinary that we have built. I, I don't, I can't think of another group of that size that has that much empathy, that that is so positive towards one another, um, there's civility. I mean, and that is something that we are sorely lacking right now. And there is, you know, just, it's it's an incredible thing to see. Um, you know, it almost feels like a family of sorts. Like I wake up in the morning, like I I check in on people through the day, I, you know, I, I talk to them in the middle of the night. And, but what's more amazing is that they're talking to each other in the middle of the night. Um, that's what's extraordinary. And I'll see a message of like, thank you so much for being there for me last night. I couldn't have gotten through it without you. And knowing that these are, I mean, strangers uh, coming from, I mean, this is literally the most diverse group of people you can possibly imagine. Literally, the only thing they have in common is that they all caught the most contagious virus we've ever known. I mean, that's it. That's the only thing they have in common. And so it it shows you some goodness about humanity. It It shows you, you know, there's... 
you know, in the same way that, you know, donating plasma is, is therapeutic. It, it is also therapeutic to be able to help somebody who's in need and who, who needs, an, you know, or who can learn from you. And so interestingly, we see Northeasterners reaching out and helping people now in rural areas, you know, first, you know, in Texas and Arizona and Florida when they were first getting hit. And we see each wave helping the next because they've been through it. And so they have advice. They have things to say. I didn't have anyone giving me advice when I had COVID, but there's a lot of advice to be given. Now, would I normally say go to the internet for medical advice? No, that's like literally the worst idea in the world. But these are not normal times, nor is anybody allowed to actually give out medical advice. Um, you can give your own anecdotal story, but we have a lot of rules and we stick to them. And our admins are amazing in that they are able to maintain this. Um, so we are far and away, you know, the largest grassroots COVID movement in the world at this point. And probably one of the largest positive spaces. I mean, people, everyone knows social media from their own experience or from seeing just how negative it can be, especially when somebody has a large following, whether they're a celebrity or an influencer or really any large community, people have so many strong opinions and it's usually associated with, even if there's some sort of negativity or sorry, some sort of positivity, there's always some negativity and it just really doesn't seem like that's present here. Yeah, I, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I had my first I had my first brush with that last week. Um, I, I had my first tweet go viral. Um, I it had something like a hundred and eleven thousand likes and shared thirty thousand some odd times. Um, and the pe- things that people had to say about me, my God, it was shocking. I was like, oh. That's what people are talking about when they say Twitter is so mean. Because I'm like, yeah, I'm one of those people who, you know, Twitter for me is like therapy. It's like, you know, shouting into the ether because nobody's responding. You know, two people will like it, three maybe, you know. It's just my way of venting. But um, so I had never received any of it because nothing I had tweeted had ever gotten that much traction. But man, people are vicious. But um, yeah, you don't see any of that in Survivor Core, not at all. I mean, it's actually funny. Um, once I got kicked out of my own town's uh, parent page, I had to start my own. <laughs> but I will. Um, I mean, you do what you got to do. But I, um, I'll some, I'll often post the same article to both groups, and um, you know, I, I know exactly what I'm going to get from the Survivor Core group of 103,000 people. But, you know, I met with vitriol in my thousand person <laughs> town group. There is something really special about it. There's something really unusual. Um, folks at Facebook warned me early on to switch it to a page uh, once we hit a pretty low number. They're like, because groups just, they they fall apart. They implode. Um, and we kept at it. I had faith. I had faith in this group. And they have not proved me wrong. They have amazed me every day. What has the group done for your mental health and your recovery? Oh my God. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, like to, it it gives you purpose in the most, in the deepest, uh, most profound way. I I mean, look, I, I can talk about, you know, donating plasma and what it feels like to save lives, but that's, you know, it's, 
and it is, it is, it is truly an extraordinary experience, but it's, it's more abstract. These are real people who I speak with on the phone, who I text with, who, you know, I, I know the names of their kids sometimes, not, not everybody, um, you know, but having an impact on that many people's lives and bringing them together and giving them something to root for and to advocate for themselves. Um, we call people, you know, I, I call the members superheroes because in, in many ways they are, and they are doing the hard work. You know, so when I put out a call for all those people to fill out that survey, it took some of them days to fill it out. Um, remember that one of the major issues that people are having post COVID are cognitive issues and brain fog and memory. And so, and extreme fatigue. So in order to, and it was extraordinarily comprehensive and it took them days, but they kept at it. Um, they will go to bat for each other and for themselves. And they realized that we, the world is listening to them. And that's extraordinary. I, we get a ton of media requests um, for members. I, I, I often joke that I could put a COVID booker on my resume. I'm not sure where that will get me, but um, if, if I wanted to, I guess. <laughs> um, but you know, it's incredible when when these you know when folks get the opportunity to tell their story on TV. They get to go on CNN and tell their story. They get to tell their story to the New York Times. They get to tell their local news and national news and international news. And that is empowering. You know, they are off, they're being gaslit by their doctors who are being, who are diagnosing them with anxiety when they're actually having tachycardia. It's happening mostly to women. Women make up a, majority of people who are suffering from long COVID. And so, you know, add that gender, you know, piece into it. And you're looking at what's really being treated as like the modern day female hysteria. Yeah. And I, I know employers too are saying, well, you, you couldn't possibly be sick for that long. You got COVID. Everyone says, oh, it's 14 days. You should be back at work by now. Right. Why are you still so tired? Why are you still so sick? They don't believe you. Right. Right. And people's family members are having the same reaction or thinking that they're, you know, just, I mean, just look at the, just look at the responses to me on Twitter <laughs> last, last week and you can see I, I got a little glimpse of what people are dealing with. Um, and what happens, you know, what happens with your employer if you were never able to even get a diagnostic test in March or April because they weren't available or the ones that were available were large, were, many of them were faulty. Um, you know, that has to be kept in mind too. We're looking at having to rewrite policies. I, this is going to be a long-term effort in getting these people the care that they deserve. You know, we're going to need a disability fund. This will be the largest group of disabled young Americans that exists. I mean, that is sobering. Yeah, incredibly. And I know people are saying now, you know, yes, cases may be up, but it's young people and it really only affects older people. I mean, when you hear that and you, like, what do you think when people try to discount the severity of it just because it's maybe now affecting more young people, but less severe cases, less hospitalizations or less deaths? Right. 
Right, exactly. So we're seeing fewer deaths. We're seeing mortality rate is going down, but the infection rate is skyrocketing. And, you know, when you look at these college campuses, I mean, it's just breeding grounds. I mean, what, what we really need in the same way that we bailed out the car industry, the auto industry, we should bail out the universities so that they can... I mean, they they need to keep kids on campus so that they can stay afloat financially, you know, and then they're having these huge outbreaks and then they risk, send, you know, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't in terms of sending them all back to wherever they came from and, in, you know, starting waves of outbreaks throughout the country. But people are not paying attention to the fact that in those CDC numbers, one in three aren't recovering, but one in five are young, healthy people with no pre-existing conditions. And remember that that taps out at 34. So we're talking about people in their 20s and early 30s. Even teenagers, late teenagers are having these issues. Some children are having these issues to a, to a lesser number. But, but certainly, you know, once you you're a late teenager, your body is pretty much that of an adult. And so, you know, sure, okay, you might only, you might not get that sick from COVID, but two months later, you could have a stroke or a heart attack. You know, you could walk away with, you know, an inflamed heart or scar tissue on your heart after having been asymptomatic. I mean, it is it it blows my mind that we're being so cavalier about our population i mean th- this is you know you're 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 jeopardizing an entire generation for health consequences that we can't even yet imagine nobody has looked nobody has studied it yet there have been no report there have been no peer reviewed studies on any of this yet there hasn't been time there hasn't been enough time and so uh, it infuriates me that policies are being made like that that are not based on science. We've learned things since March, but our policies haven't changed in the slightest. You are, are such an advocate. You talk about speaking with people on the phone all day long in the middle of the night, knowing their families. I mean, that must be incredibly busy for you. It sounds like that's the <laughs> a very light word to describe you. I mean, how are you doing yourself? You're still facing the effects of long COVID. Yeah, I, I have to say I am very lucky. I um, I am. I still am having GI issues, deep inner ear pain, headaches. I actually was just diagnosed with glaucoma last week, um, which the ophthalmologist thinks was brought on by the COVID, which as a photographer, is, I, I haven't quite wrapped my head around that. But mine are mine are mild, very much compared with others. When I mean the folks that I'm talking about are 25 year old marathon runners who literally are on month five and cannot climb a flight of stairs. But yeah, it's exhausting. But it is empowering, and I I feel like I'm on a campaign. I've worked on many campaigns, and this is a campaign. This is the most important campaign I've ever worked on because people's lives are in the balance. And so I am so motivated. It's hard to balance everything. You know, I I have, you know, I, I don't go to the Zoom. I have, I have not, I think I've been to one Zoom happy hour during <laughs> this entire six months. Um, I've missed out on some of the, you know, <laughs> all of the, the sort of social memes that I'm like, oh, right, that's, 
was out there the last six months. I've sort of missed it all. You know, my kids would like me to be working a little bit less. That's for sure. That is for sure. But I think that they also understand, they're old enough to understand the importance of what, what I'm doing. And I hope that it's a model to them. You know, my my daughter's bat mitzvah was a year ago yesterday. I was looking at the photos and it was like looking at photos from the moon, you know, to see all those people congregated in one place. And it just seemed like it was from another lifetime. But it's the tradition in our synagogue that on the day of um, a child's bar bat mitzvah, the parents write a prayer for the child. And the prayer that I wrote for our daughter was that I hoped that she lived a life like Rabbi Heschel. And when he said, when he marched with Martin Luther King, he was praying with his feet moving. And that I prayed that she lived a life with praying with her feet moving. And I'm not a particularly religious person, but I feel like I am praying with my feet moving every day. And I'm working with an amazing team. I have to tell you, there are like six of us. It's really small. And we are almost all women. We're all mom, Gen X moms. And so the the one meme that I can relate to from the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, this was before everything shut down. And I remember seeing some memes that said, it's going to be Gen X moms to the rescue because they're busy keeping both their parents home and their kids home. <laughs> But at the end of the day, you know, moms, we get it done. And so we're we're all doing, you know, we're all, you know, monitoring our kids, doing remote schooling on the side. But everyone is just so super committed. And it is incredibly gratifying to see what a mark we've already made. And the more I learn, the more I am focused on what needs to happen. And so I see more and more of a roadmap, and that's helpful. One of the slogans throughout all of this has been alone but together. And from our discussion, I mean, we all know that COVID, especially having it, is incredibly isolating because you have to be literally so isolated. But you have created something and a place for people who are going through something completely alone and by themselves and isolated, probably one of the most isolating experiences anyone uh, who has COVID has ever had, you've created something where they can feel less alone. That is really powerful. Yeah, they are connected. I mean, we need connection. We, I mean, this has not been normal, you know? Uh, we've been stuck with the same few people in a house, if you're lucky. I mean, a lot of people are home alone. Um, but even if you're with a few other people, look, there's a reason why the biosphere didn't work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, No one's supposed to spend that. I mean, I love my family, but no one's supposed to spend that much time together. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it is. It is truly look there. I try to look for for the silver linings of of what positive can come out of all of this. There's been so much loss, so much devastation, so much that will take decades to rebuild and some that can't be rebuilt. I mean, you can't rebuild the lives lost, the 200,000 lives lost, the people whose health is, you know, irreparably damaged. But it's heartening to see things like you know, science move forward at a faster clip. Not not careless science, but 
real science. And, you know, we're seeing biotech companies, you know, we're partnered with the blood banks, we're partnered with the biotech companies, we're partnered with the universities. We're sort of the um, hub in the middle of the bicycle wheel of COVID. We are owned by nobody, but partnered with everybody. And what's beautiful to see is that they're all working together. They're working in coordination. There's collaboration happening. Yes, you know, we do need more peer-reviewed studies and we need that peer review process to go a little bit faster. Um, So they're can be, you know, a few, you know, maybe a, f- a fewer clickbait headlines that that make the news, but having this huge, you know, flow of of information being released is liberating to the scientific world. And I have so much respect for these scientists who everyone I have met literally, I mean, nobody was a covid expert before March. But they all turned their practices, their studies, their labs around on a dime to come together to do this. And, you know, so maybe, you know, maybe there are a few good things that will come out of this. It's hard. It's hard sometimes to see it. Yeah, definitely. But uh, it's easy to see it when you scroll through your group and see the changes that are being made, the studies that are being done and the people just connecting. It's its really honestly beautiful. Any uh, last words um, for maybe anybody who is feeling alone, feeling like they have COVID or they, they did and they're still just not getting over it. I think that there are so many people out there who don't even realize that, you know, this community of people are out there. Absolutely. Um, look, if you, first of all, if you haven't had COVID, Please fear it like the devil. Assume that everyone around you is already infected, as are you, and every single person you infect is either your best friend or your grandmother. You know, okay, now for the people who did have it, and if you're not feeling better after a few weeks, it's not in your head. This disease is much more insidious than we realized. We thought it was a respiratory disease. It's a vascular disease. It is affecting every organ. Please go seek medical help. You deserve it. If your doctor doesn't take you seriously, find another doctor. Come join us at Survivor Corps. We're an open group on Facebook. We're open to everybody, whether or not you had COVID. And please visit our website, www.survivorcore.com. That's C-O-R-P-S, like the Peace Corps or Army Corps. And download our study and bring it to your doctor so that you can better advocate for yourself if they don't believe you. And so that you can highlight, go through our list of 98 symptoms. I bet you'll see a lot of very similar things that you thought you were the only one experiencing. And you are not alone. You have a huge group of people there at your back who are there for you, fighting along with you. Join us and we will get this done together. We have no other choice. Diana, thank you. Knowing that there are people like you in the world working on this and fighting for this makes me feel a lot better. And I'm sure uh, you're having that impact on so many people. So thank you. And thank you for sharing the story with me. Thank you so much. This was such an honor.
what do you hope besides the scientific angle or maybe including the scientific angle really comes from this group and more broadly from this time? I think that if there is a way that you can give back, it is, you know, it is healing to everybody. It is healing to you. It is healing to the world. Right now, as a country, as a globe, we are being told that the best thing that you can do is to literally do nothing. And yeah, part of that is true. Definitely. Don't go to the bars. <laughs> you know, don't go to any inside restaurants. You know, don't go to, don't go to any parties. That is true. But we are hardwired as human beings to want to help. Telling us to do nothing goes against the very grain of who we are as people. And so whether it is donating plasma or signing up for a study or just a kind word to another Survivor Corps member or to a neighbor, it is anything that we can do to improve this situation that we are in is therapeutic for us, for the world. It is, it's the only way that we can move forward. It's the only way we can start to heal. Thanks for listening.